The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I was in junior high when I officially asked Jesus to be my Savior. I have very vivid memories of the camp at which the Falls Church Episcopal Youth Group was on retreat. I can picture the rooms in which we stayed, the big room in which we had our meetings, and even some of the roads that we would walk on to get from one place to another. I even remember the girl that I had a crush on at the time, a young lady whose name I will take to my grave. Now, I can't remember what the dining hall looked like, although I'm sure there must have been one. You may not be surprised to hear that I remember in exacting detail what the basketball court looked like and the many games of one-on-one played against arch nemesis Nick Dusenberry, who I think was a college-aged volunteer with the youth ministry. He was already this tall then, and I was of pretty average height at that age. I think I was probably 13 or 14, so he presented a challenge. But other than the basketball, the clearest memory I have is of the moment sitting there in that big meeting room where I decided to give my life to Christ. Now, there wasn't any beam of sunlight shining through the window. I wasn't struck blind or knocked off my horse. It just seemed, at the time, like something I had to do. Now, maybe you have a story like that yourself. You know, sort of a boring one. One that you don't get asked to tell at dinner parties. And it can be easy for those of us who don't have a story about a beam of sunlight or being knocked off our horses. It can be easy for us to forget that the operation is the same as it is for those whose stories are more cinematic. You know, those who are saved out of drug addiction or out of a cult or something. We can forget that our seemingly boring story is actually an inbreaking miracle of God in the world turning the heart of a sinner to faith in the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. Our boring stories don't feel like that. But the reason we forget, I think, isn't ultimately because our conversion story is boring. We forget because we all have a tendency. We are all prone to want to take a little credit for ourselves. Now, when I told you my story just now, it wouldn't have been hard if you weren't listening super closely for it to sound like my Christian life now is founded on a good decision I made all those years ago. It could sound like it's all about me. Maybe God was up there waiting to see what I would do, but it was really up to me to make that first move, up to me to invite him into my life. And in this context, you can see how so many people 
make one of the most common theological mistakes of all time. The very mistake that Jesus' disciples make in our reading from Luke chapter 17. You can see how people get it into their heads that God will do everything to save you. Except that very first thing. That's up to you. But those, those are fighting words. And when Jesus' disciples ask him to increase their faith, it sounds like a good thing to ask for, right? But Jesus doesn't compliment them on their desire. He doesn't say, ah, what a righteous request. Indeed, you have shown by your wish for increased faith that you already have a lively faith within you. I am therefore glad to give you more. Uh, No, that's not how it goes at all. Instead, Jesus takes the disciples' request as, like I said, fighting words. And he responds in kind. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, this tiny thing, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In Matthew's version of the story, in chapter 17 of his gospel, Jesus says that this same tiny faith, if it existed, could move mountains. If it existed. But he implies it doesn't. The disciples are asking for more faith, assuming that they have some. And Jesus is telling them bluntly that they have none. Why does Jesus react so harshly? Why does he fight? Well, because the idea that God will do most of it if you do a little, that God will build on the foundation that you lay, this is an error worth fighting about. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, 1,500 years after Jesus has this fight with his disciples, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, has this exact same fight with a Dutch reformer named Erasmus. This fight, and you uh, historical theology scholars will forgive me for a little generalization and oversimplification here, but this fight, again, had to do with just how much of the saving work was up to God and how much was up to you. Now, Erasmus wanted to argue And this was seen as a kind of reformation against Rome even then. Erasmus wanted to argue that God would do almost everything. Almost. All you had to do was to turn and accept him. Just that. God would go 99 yards, in other words, if you would just go one. And Martin Luther freaked out. Those he knew were fighting words. Luther said that if you have to go one yard, one foot, one inch, that made everything dependent on you. One millimeter was too much for Luther. Why not, he suggested to Erasmus, be intellectually honest? Go all the way. If everything depends on the one yard that we have to go, why not require that we do everything? That we must save ourselves completely. After all, if anything depends on you, then everything depends on you. And you can see how this is the same fight, albeit brief, 
here in the pages of Scripture that Jesus is having with his disciples. You see, Jesus knows our propensity to want to take a little credit, to remember the good decisions we made, to hang our hats on the one yard that we had to go, and he won't stand for it. He will not be the person who gives you a little more of what you already have. He insists on being all that you have. We think, like the disciples did, that we have some faith and we could use a little more. Jesus says, in response, that we have none. Now see, inherent in the request for more faith is the idea that we already have some faith of our own. Jesus takes us back to square one. Outside of him, we have no faith at all. Inherent in the idea that God will go 99 yards is that we have the ability to go that one yard. Jesus takes us back to square one. We can't do anything outside of him. And inherent in the idea that we could stand to get better is the idea that we already have at least some goodness of our own on which to build. Again, Jesus takes us back to square one. Here, all the way back, claiming that outside of him, we aren't even alive. Sometimes, when we have less than profound conversion stories, like mine, right? I wasn't saved from selling drugs on the street or converted by a prison chaplain while I was on death row. I was saved sitting on a comfortable carpet, probably listening to jars of clay, surrounded by other upper middle class kids who were having a great time. But what if I had been selling drugs? What if I had been in prison? What if my salvation story was more like that of a drowning swimmer, thrown a life preserver at the last moment? Well, even that, it turns out, isn't profound enough. The biblical metaphor here is simple and deep. The Bible says that we are dead. Whether we're on the street, in prison, or at a comfortable retreat center in the mountains in Virginia, outside of Christ, we are dead. We think we're a drowning swimmer or an inmate on death row. Jesus says we are already dead. He refuses to give us even the chance to brag about grabbing the life preserver or making the good decision or going the one yard. He shows us that we need so much more than just a simple rescue as we would conceive of it. He shows us that we need a resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 2, St. Paul couldn't be more blunt. You were dead, he says, in trespasses and sins. No ambiguity, dead. As far as the ability to please God goes, you have flatlined. It's over. You're dead. But Paul is not finished. Though you were dead in trespasses and sins, God... He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. 
Listen, the Christian story is not a story of narrow escape or a story of good decisions made or a story of one yard successfully fought for. Ours is a story of death and resurrection. Jesus refuses to be your helper. He refuses to be your coach. He refuses to be that final thing that pushes you over the top. He refuses to be the the top-up on your fuel tank of faith. He refuses to be the great marathon to which you only need to add one step. He will not be the 99 yards. But wait a second. Doesn't the Bible allow for some required movement on our part? After all, don't we have a biblical image like the one in Revelation 3 with Jesus standing at the door knocking? Don't you have to open it? Don't you have to go some kind of one yard? Don't you have to do something? As I sat there on that floor of that conference center in junior high, it would have been easy to imagine Jesus looking down on me really hoping that I made a good choice. And it seems to fit very well with the image, at least as we conceive of it, of him standing at the door to my heart, knocking, really hoping that I answer. And I'm not saying that that image isn't true. In fact, I want to tell you that that image is true. We just don't have any idea how profound that image actually is. Jesus is indeed standing at the door knocking. He was indeed that afternoon in junior high standing at the door of my heart knocking. But there are two things that we need to know here. Two truths that the Bible teaches. First, what our posture is behind that door. And second, the character of Jesus' knock what kind of knocking he is doing. And we've talked a bit already this morning about our posture behind the door. We're dead. (laughs) Dead in trespasses and sins. The door upon which Jesus is knocking opens to a room in which we are lying in a casket. But that doesn't stop Jesus. Here's Paul in Romans 5. For while we were still weak understatement. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that is to use Paul's own words, dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. While you were dead in sin, Jesus died for you. So Jesus is knocking. You're in a casket on the other side of that door. But if anything, if we want to sort of uh, stretch the metaphor a little bit further, if there is any metaphorical life on the other side of that door, we have climbed out of our coffins and are desperately closing lodges and throwing deadbolts and shouting through the door, I'm just fine in here. No thanks. Come back another time. I'm quite satisfied being the God of my own life. This is when God sends his son to and for us while we are sinners. Now let me tell you about the character, the power of Jesus' knocking. 
Revelation isn't wrong. Jesus is standing there knocking. But his knock is cracking the planks, busting the locks, and tearing the door from its hinges. Your door is coming down. His love will not be contained. Like Lazarus' resurrection that we read about last week, Jesus' word reaches down into the tomb, into our cold and dead and sinful hearts, and brings them back to life. When Christ's knocking is over, and the door is lying in smithereens on the floor, and we have been lifted up out of our coffins, there is now only one thing that we can do. One thing. And it's not going one yard or making a good decision. And it's one thing that is only possible because we have been resurrected. The one thing we can do is acknowledge that God in Christ has done everything. All we can do is give up. And meekly say, okay, you might as well come in, Jesus. You're all that I have. That's what was going on at that cushy retreat center all those years ago. Not a good decision on my part. Not my going one yard. It was surrender to the overwhelming power of Almighty God and his good news for me in Jesus Christ. He broke down my door. It was me saying, okay, you might as well come in. You're all that I have. Into that surrender, Jesus says, yes, I am. I am all that you have. And I am all that you need. In the final analysis, the disciples simply made the wrong request of Jesus. Instead of increase my faith, They should have said, have mercy on me, a sinner, like that tax collector from Jesus's parable in Luke 18. That guy, instead of asking for more of something that he thought he already had, went home justified because he knew he needed everything. His eyes were open to the truth that on his own, he was dead. This is our most common spiritual error. We Imagine we're doing okay and just need a little help. Or if we're a little more honest, we think we're drowning and need a rescue. And so we come to Jesus asking for a little more faith. Or for him to be our helper or our coach, our 99 yards. But none of that is enough. And Jesus will not have it. Jesus will only be your everything. Because you're not doing okay. You're not even drowning. Neither is deep enough. If you had any faith at all, we could move mulberry trees or even mountains. Anybody want to come outside with me and try it? I didn't think so. In terms of faith, outside of Christ, we are dead. We need A resurrection. But your death is not the end of the story. You have a resurrection. In Jesus Christ, your Savior. Now here in about 10 seconds, 
We're going to together reaffirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. And as we do it, understand that this is less a celebration of a faith that you have within you than it is a joyous recitation of a faith that you have been given and a desperate plea to keep believing. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So say it with us, knowing that Jesus has broken down your door, raised you to new life, and promised to be with you forever. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Jesus is your everything. Amen.